Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks, Graham. Next Sunday is Father's Day. And my parents were separated and divorced when I was only eight years old. And my mum had unexpectedly collected me from school one day when my dad was at work and raced us off to Mirriburra, down south to Mirriburra, to get as far away as possible from my father. And after several uncomfortable years, while the dust settled, the judge at the divorce hearing decreed that I must be allowed to live with my father for four weeks of every year at Christmas time. Now, my mother hated the idea, but she had no option but to comply. So every year, she grudgingly packed my bag and put me on a plane and sent me north. My father's home was in Mossman. And I felt obliged for my mother's sake to show my displeasure at having to go. But deep down, I really looked forward to that holiday with my father in North Queensland. In fairness to my father, he treated me like a prince during those four short weeks. He took me exploring on the Atherton Tableland. He took me rock hunting at Herberton. He took me deep sea fishing on the Barrier Reef. He tried to fill every day in that time with pleasure and adventure. And he visited every friend he had to show off the only son that he had. And I loved it. I felt significant. I felt valued. I felt safe. And Mossman was my father's home. About six weeks ago, I preached on preparing for heaven. You remember that? And it reminded me that I have another wonderful adventure with my father that's still to happen. Not my earthly father. Unfortunately, I doubt that I'll see my dad there. This adventure will be with my heavenly father. For heaven is the father's home. And the good news is, most of you, I expect, will be there because heaven is your father's home too. In John 14, verse 1, Jesus said, In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we have a date with the Father and with Christ in the Father's home. Everyone in heaven will live in the Father's house. 
Many houses are not necessary. Only the one house, the dwelling place of God. Heaven is your father's home. Verse 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. Now, simply put, those of us who are committed believers are going more to be with a person than than to a place. We'll enter into fellowship, friendship, communion with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we will never leave his presence again. Being with God is the essence of heaven. It is paradise, which means a garden of bliss. Heaven will be paradise regained, but infinitely better than what Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden. We will enjoy unending, pleasurable company with God and with others. Last time I preached, I answered some frequently asked questions about heaven. And today, this morning, I'm going to try to answer some more. Just two, actually. With special application to those of us who are or who will be fathers. I told you a little bit, little bit about the holiday that Kay and I are planning to spend in Norway and Finland, Sweden, in five months' time. And I drew last time some parallels between preparing to go to Scandinavia and preparing for heaven. And I described last time round some of the frequently asked questions about going to that place. Can I be sure there's somewhere to go? Will there be sights to see? Will I see God? Won't heaven be boring? Will there be things I have to leave behind? Now, if you're interested, I think that message is still on the website. Some of you don't realise that all of these messages that we do here are normally on our website, the Wynnum Baptist website, for two or three or four months. Uh, So if you're interested in going back to that because you didn't hear the first part, that's where it is. I want to talk this morning, firstly, about what I call frequently asked question six. Are there pleasures to enjoy? Psychologist Lawrence Crabb made a very wise and insightful comment in one of his books. He said, Fulfillment and satisfaction, blessing, comes from a sense of significance and security. We use the word blessing, but I'm not sure we understand it when we use it often. I, don't, I prefer not to use the word blessing because it's lost some of its meaning. The two words in Greek and the word makarios uh, speaks about fulfilment and satisfaction. So if somebody is blessed, they're fulfilled, 
and they're satisfied. And so Lawrence Crabb said, fulfillment and satisfaction comes from a sense of significance and security. A sense of being valued by, by others and by myself and by God. A sense of security, a place of being safe. That adds up to blessing. And heaven is a place of blessing. A place of uninterrupted joy, unended blessing. Joy in this life is always mixed with sorrow, discouragement and sadness and disillusionment, worry. Yesterday I was really glad. Today I'm really sad. Isn't that what happens so often? And sin and grief and sorrow dampen all of our joys. And and an honest look at today's world, especially highlighted by the the Russian-Ukrainian war going on at this moment, produces only tears. But heaven will be a place of untainted joy. And the dominant characteristic of heaven will be joy, which springs from a perfect sense of security and significance in Christ. Any joy we experience now in this life is merely a foretaste of what's to come. In the simplest terms, we may define heaven as a place of unmixed and unending joy. Heavenly perfection is never altered. It just goes on. It's always going to be the same. And that's hard for me to comprehend because it's never yet been my experience. Incidentally, hell is the opposite. It's a place of unmixed and unending pain and torment. But in heaven, all the longings of the rescued and the redeemed person will be satisfied forever, eternally, and the soul and the spirit will be perfected forever. What's your soul? Well, your soul is the core of who you are, the immaterial seat of your thinking, your memory, your feelings, your imagination, your convictions, your desires, your affections. What about spirit? Same thing? No, not quite. Two merged together. We're all one. Human spirit is that part of us that enables us to interact and have communion with other people, other persons, and with the person, with God. As believers, we have within us the seeds of perfection, but our souls are not yet perfect. And our minds and our wills and our emotions continue to do wrong because our souls are not yet perfected. But the moment a believer dies, his soul is instantly perfected. And he enters into God's presence. The body goes to the grave. And nowadays, the soul and spirit goes immediately to heaven. Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, 
2 Corinthians 5.8. In Philippians 1 verse 23, Paul says he has the desire to depart and be with Christ. He's talking about dying, for that's very much better. Then he goes on to say, but it's not yet my time, so that's up to God when I go. All the saints who have died in the past are now in heaven without their bodies. Hebrews 12.22 makes that clear. It says, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to be with Christ, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. In heaven, the spirits of the saints, the people who've died in Christ, are there. So, yes, there are pleasures to enjoy beyond our imagination at this point in time. Is there history to know about? FAQ 7, second one, second point this morning. Well, yes, there is. And the history of death, the history of heaven up to this point in time, is interesting, fascinating, stimulating, challenging. Where did the Old Testament godly people, the Old Testament saints, where did they go when they died? Because they weren't yet acceptable in God's perfect heaven. Christ hadn't yet paid the price. Is there a place, as the Catholics say, of purgatory? What's that about? What I didn't explain last time was the history of heaven. I've got some diagrams I'm going to use, and uh, you can get these by looking at the, the website or using your phone to take a picture. Before we go to Scandinavia, it will, be, it will be very wise for us to get some idea of the history of the countries that we're going to. And this will reduce some of our culture shock. It'll enable us uh, to mingle more easily with the citizens of that country. And... It seems to me that many Christians are quite ignorant about the history of heaven. Perhaps they're like me. Before I went to my father's home in Mossman, uh, you don't want to appear too keen because it might offend those in the family or, or your friends who won't be going. To be interested in heaven might suggest that we're suicidal or morbidly interested in death. The reality is that every one of us has a date with death, unless Christ comes before, and that will alter things. So it makes good sense to know something about where we're going. Now, uh, understand, as I tried to make clear last time, it will be a minority that actually go to heaven. Only those who know and trust in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord they're going. Those who don't go to another place that's described in the Bible as everlasting torment. 
I'm talking today to those of you who are preparing for heaven, not the other place. But I need to make a disclaimer. What I'm about to explain does not enjoy total agreement amongst all Bible scholars. So I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. Some of you will agree and some of you won't. Some of you have never thought about it. That's okay. Not every evangelical conservative scholar agrees with all the detail that I'm about to put up on some of these diagrams. But many do. To me, these diagrams that I'm going to show you make the most sense of what the Bible says. But the evidence is not always as clear as we'd like. Um, The message says in in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 12, uh, we don't see yet things clearly. Uh, By the way, the message is a paraphrase of the Bible. If you're going to be studying theology, you should go to a translation like the NIV or the New King James or something like that. But the paraphrase sometimes makes it easier to to grasp at a basic level. And so it says, we're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun is bright. And we'll see it all then. We'll see it as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. So here's a story that I want to read that Jesus himself told. Uh, Incidentally, every story or parable that Jesus told was based on a reality. They're not just fairy stories. So we can assume that the details of this story that I'm going to tell you or read now are based on reality too. It's not a fairy story. This is a perception of what happens after death and was the common understanding of the godly Jews in Jesus' time and was endorsed by Jesus. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was once a rich man, expensively dressed in the latest fashions, wasting his days in conspicuous consumerism. A poor man named named Lazarus, covered with sores, had been dumped on his doorstep. And all he lived for was to get a meal from the scraps of the rich man's table. His best friends were the dogs who came and licked his sores. And then he died, this poor man. He was taken up by the angels to the lap of Abraham. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades and in torment, He looked up and he saw Abraham in the distance and Lazarus in his lap. And he called out, Father Abraham, mercy, have mercy. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you got the good things. And Lazarus got the bad things. It's not like that here. Here he's consoled and you're tormented. Besides, in all these matters, there's a huge chasm set between us so that no one can go from us to you even if he wanted to, nor can anyone cross over from you to us. The rich man said, Then let me ask you, Father, 
Send him to the house of my father where I have five brothers so that he can tell them the score and warn them so they won't end up here in this place of torment. And Abraham answered, they've got the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets to tell them the score. Let them listen to them. I know Father Abraham, he said, but they're not listening. If someone came back from the dead, they would change their ways. Abraham replied, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, the Bible, then they're not going to be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. Now let me explain just briefly the background to that story using these diagrams. In the time that we've got this morning left, the best I can do is to give you, a, as Bible students, a fast track through this fascinating theology of death. Right back in the beginning, let me use the... In the Garden of Eden, God filled the whole wonderful place with trees, fruit. And people were allowed, Adam and Eve were allowed to eat of the fruit of any one of those trees, except one, and that was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was another tree there, special tree in the centre, called the tree of of life. They could eat of that. But the choice that Adam and Eve made was having been tempted to eat of the tree that God says you're not to eat of. And they made a choice and it wrecked human history from that point on. Plan A that God had that people would enjoy and know get it right, was gone. So plan B was into operation. And the result of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good, of experiencing evil for the first time, of experiencing rejection of God and rebellion against God, was that Adam and Eve and all their descendants went to a place for the dead called Hades, or in, in, that's in the Greek, in the... In the Hebrew, it was Sheol, the place of the dead. And in that place, which is described later in Jesus, by Jesus in the story I told you, there were two divisions, a place for the godly and a place for the ungodly. The rich and ungodly man went to the ungodly place. Lazarus, the poor but godly man, went to the other place where Abraham, a man of faith, was already resident. Not going, Cheryl, not going. There we go. So Abraham was in the place of the godly a man of faith. Isaac, it says, was gathered to his people. Jacob was gathered to his people. David, godly man, but still a sinful man, was taken to be with the fathers, it says. So right through history, there's been this place of the dead, Hades, Sheol, 
uh, call it what you want. And there's always been a judgment involved. If people choose to reject or rebel against God, then the judgment kicks in and they either go to one or other of those two places, in the place of the dead. So to return to our story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man went to the place of the ungodly and the poor but godly man went to be with Abraham and others of faith in that place. What about the dying thief? He was a murderer, by the way. He was more than a thief. He was a terrorist in those times. Two dying murderers either side of Jesus on the cross. One of them continued to rebel and reject God. The other made a last-minute decision to follow and trust Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now hang on. Where did Jesus go when he died? The creed says he descended into Hades for three days and three nights. Didn't go to heaven. When Jesus died, he went to Hades. And he said to the dying thief, the dying murderer, you'll be with me and you'll enjoy paradise. Paradise is being with Jesus. No matter where it is, place of the dead or heaven, Paradise. So the dying thief went with Jesus to the place of the godly. Notice also in the story that these people were conscious. They weren't dreaming, not sleeping. They were aware of who they were. They could remember their history. They looked forward to the future. All aspects of soul and spirit were operational even after death, in that place. They could communicate, but there was no body. When Jesus died, scriptures say he went into Hades. But something interesting happened. There's a couple of little throwaway lines I wish the Bible gave us a complete history of what's going to happen. But it's, it's uh, as, you know, as you need to know, basis, apparently. Uh, we, need, we need to know a bit about what's happening, but not, not everything. So, it says in Ephesians 4.8, in almost a throwaway line, when Jesus ascended on high, he took many captives... And he gave gifts to people. What does it mean he ascended? But that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. So Jesus went to Hades. Along with others where people were captive. But then in 1 Peter 3.19 it says, Jesus after being made alive, he went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. He preached to the spirits who were in this place. Now the word is not preached the gospel, it's proclaimed. What did Jesus proclaim after his death on the cross as he went to that place of the dead called Hades? He proclaimed deliverance. 
the end of that time. And after three days and three nights, by the way, that raises a question about is it Good Friday or Good Thursday? Do your maths on that one. Won't go there. <laughs> the end of three days and three nights, Jesus rose again and went to heaven. And he took with him a host of captives whom we presume were those who'd been in this intermediate waiting place, the place of the godly, Abraham, and all those other people of faith. Because finally the price had been paid for their sin by, by Calvary, where God himself paid the, the, the ransom and they were taken to be with God in heaven. When Stephen, a, saint, a godly man, disciple, when he was stoned to death after the death of Jesus, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was going to be with Jesus. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against these other people. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. When Stephen... New Testament saint, died. He went to be with Jesus wherever Jesus was. Now, Jesus was in heaven, along with all the other released captives who were in the godly section described in the story that Jesus told. There are others too. All of the saints, those who've gone before us, described in Hebrews chapter 12, it says of them... Therefore, since we are, and this is us, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses today, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. This is a fast track through a fascinating theology of death. Any of you are interested? I've got some handouts there that... You can follow through in more detail. And then in Revelation 21, 1-4, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then Revelation 22, verse 2. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healings of the nation. What God intended at the beginning, that, that man who was programmed to die could eat of the tree of life and live forever, had fin will finally happen. And the tree of life is what we choose when we follow Jesus and accept all that he has done for us.
So, as I look forward to Father's Day next week, I'm reminded that my life after death is determined by my life before death. And my life after death depends on what decisions I've already made before that happens. In the Old Testament, Moses, talking to fathers, said, said, Cheryl, rescue me, said, there we go. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. I'm going there. I hope to see you there too. Ask the worship team to come up. Father, Heavenly Father, we just can't comprehend what it's going to be like. Thank you for saving us, saving me now. Thanks for the life, the abundant life that's already in operation. And as long as you want that to be, Lord, we're happy to be here. But we look forward to what's going to be beyond forever and ever. Keep us close to you now because we know we're going to be even closer to you then. Amen.